0: Welcome back to Buried Motives. We're glad you're here with us this week for another exciting case. Oh, we're in for a doozy today. Let me tell you that. Christy and I were having an argument earlier this week over who had found the biggest dirt bag.
1: It's true. And I believe that for Father's Day this year, I might have discovered one of the worst fathers yet. As I started looking into this sick dirt bag, without telling her who it was, I sent a text to Melissa to say that I thought I found the worst dad ever for my case this week. She responded with an, oh no, because she thought she had just found the worst case of a horrible dad. We compared initials, and they were two different dads.
0: So sad that there's so many dirtbag dads out there.
1: It's so true. I'm glad we weren't researching the same case, but it is terrible that there are such horrible parents out there for us to cover. Thankfully, most dads are not like the dirtbag ones that we cover. We do have a strong female following with our podcast, but we still have a percentage of listeners represented by men. So for those of you who are listening, we want to wish you the best Father's Day ever. Even if you don't have children of your own, many of you are still a strong male influence for those around you. We are grateful for the men like that in our own lives, and we are grateful for all of you as well. So
0: we hope you have a great day. Absolutely. Sometimes dads don't get the shout-outs that they deserve. It's so true. But this dad... Doesn't deserve a shout-out? No, he deserves to be... Shut up?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, shut up or (laughs) shout it at. (laughs) Ironically, in the weeks leading up to this case, I had been searching for a cult case to cover. It has been a hot minute since we covered a cult. Finding cult cases was not hard at all, but I was struggling to find one with enough background on the cult leader since we like to dig deep into what makes a person a dirtbag. As I researched today's case, I realized that my Father's Day case was pretty much also a cult case. This case is going to be a wild ride. It is about a man who ruled his family like a cult leader. Ooh. There are a lot of people involved in this case. To avoid confusion, I will be using children's names while discussing it. Melissa, get your pen and paper handy. You might need it to keep things straight. But I did actually make a cheat sheet for Melissa that I'll give to her throughout the episode, but just not yet. That being said, I will do my best to present things in the least overwhelming way possible. There is just a lot of different components to this case.
0: Lots of different players,
1: it sounds like. Yes. So if you can, listeners, get a snack and get cozy because this wild ride is about to begin. The dirtbag we are covering is Marcus DeLon Wesson. He was born on August 22nd, 1946 in the state of Kansas to parents Benjamin and Carrie Wesson. Unsurprisingly, Marcus did not have a good upbringing. He was the oldest of four children in his family. And this is totally off-topic, but do you think birth order affects personalities?
0: Oh, absolutely it does. I do too.
1: And as I thought about it, I looked a little bit more into firstborns, and they are often said to exhibit qualities that make them natural-born leaders. They are said to be high achievers, intelligent, reliable, good leaders, cautious, conscientious, and structured. Qualities like these can aid in the great success of a firstborn child. But when I was thinking about this case, I wondered if it could also set one up to be good at leading a cult.
0: I would imagine it would.
1: Well, it made me curious how many cult leaders are firstborns or only children. I only looked up two other ones. And as it turns out, as far as I could tell, that Jim Jones, the leader of a cult that ended in the Jonestown Massacre, was an only child and that David Koresh, the leader of the cult that ended in the infamous Waco siege, was also a firstborn child. He was seven when his half-sibling was born.
0: I totally believe that birth order has something to do with personality. How can it not? As you have more children, your family evolves.
1: I totally agree. And this doesn't mean that firstborn children are born cult leaders, but I did find this interesting. I would love to read information if anyone has done full research on this. I didn't have time for a full-on rabbit hole because this case is already a big one, but I think this possible correlation could make a great research topic. Now back to Marcus. You know how they say that the most influential person in a child's life is the same-sex parent? Well, Marcus's father did a number on him. His father, Benjamin, was a huge dirtbag. He was a raging alcoholic who abused his family. He couldn't hold down a steady job, but would give Marcus $50 to engage in oral sex with him.
0: What? Yes. And not being able to hold down a steady job is like a double-edged sword, because not only are they not providing for the family and that raises tensions, which increases abuse, but then they're home even more, so that there's more opportunity for them to abuse their family members. Yes, totally agree. Such a sad scenario.
1: It really is. It was said that Benjamin, because he didn't have a job, would laze around the house, drinking alcohol, and flirting with his children. That is disgusting. Gross. We should never have to say flirting and children in the same sentence. No,
0: it's just wrong.
1: It's so wrong. In the early 1960s, the Weston family moved to San Bernardino, California. They had also lived in other states, such as Missouri, Indiana, and later Washington.
0: So they moved around quite a bit then. They did. Probably
1: because he was unemployed a lot of the time, and they probably kept getting evicted would be my guess.
0: But those aren't little moves either. No, they're
1: not. When Benjamin grew tired of his wife and four children, he up and left, abandoning them while Marcus was still a child. This full-grown, disgusting man moved in with his teenage male relative in San Jose, California. Who knows what happened during that time that he spent there. With Benjamin, I am sure it wasn't good. After about 10 years of living it up on his own, it was said that Benjamin returned home to his
0: family. Like nothing had ever happened, right?
1: Exactly. I assume this meant that his wife just allowed him back after struggling for a decade to raise their kids on her own. So let's talk about her. Carrie, Marcus's mother, was said to be extremely religious, almost fanatical. She raised her children in the Seventh-day Adventist church and made them study the Bible every single day. When the children misbehaved, she would whip them with extension cords. Marcus seemed to embrace his religious upbringing. As a child, his favorite game to play was preacher. Marcus loved pretending to be a preacher and would spend a lot of his time dressing up and preaching from the Bible.
0: Who would he preach to?
1: Everybody. He was the oldest of four siblings. So probably to his younger brothers and sisters. I can totally envision that. (laughs) Yeah. Or maybe he even had like toys set up and was preaching to them.
0: He loved it. Did they ever say what kind of sermons he was preaching about?
1: I would assume that they would be similar to whatever the sermons are like at Seventh Day Adventist Church.
0: There wasn't a particular topic, though, that he focused it on.
1: Not as a child. Okay. He just would take his little Bible, he'd dress up in his suit, and he would pretend to be the preacher. Not only did Marcus like to pretend to be a preacher, but he continued also to like to look like one too. He liked to keep his hair neatly cut, and as a teenager, he still mostly wore a suit.
0: Okay, this does not sound at all like the picture you just showed me. No, I
1: showed Melissa, and listeners, you have to go to our social media to see what he looks like at the time of his arrest. We're going to take a quick, sharp turn (laughs) when it comes to Marcus, because unfortunately... Marcus would take the worst qualities from both of his parents and live his adult life as a perverted, scripture-obsessed, degenerate lowlife. In this particular case, you can honestly do the simple math. Benjamin plus Carrie equals Marcus. Equals dirtbag. Yes. I feel like it is clearly a nurture and not so much of a nature case.
0: So you think this is all learned behavior?
1: Yeah, because he's taking this right from his parents how they
0: behave. hmm That's an interesting view because it's not too many times that we can attribute it to just one.
1: Yeah, and I really think it is. I don't think there's physiological reasons for why he behaves the way that he does. However, some would say that Marcus wasn't always the evil guy that he became. He attended Fremont Junior High School in 1960 to 1961. He wore his white shirt, jacket, and tie, while other kids wore t-shirts and blue jeans. A neighbor boy, Kenny Brownfield, said that he went to Marcus's house after school a few times. He said, quote, the only thing I can recall is just going over there and he had a bunch of electric trains and things like that. Marcus loved trains. Charles Cox, another classmate, said about Marcus, quote, he was never a bully. He never would pick fights. Marcus was a great guy. One of Marcus's cousins said that Marcus didn't smoke, he didn't drink, and he didn't do drugs.
0: Well, that goes along with his preacher attitude.
1: Yep. And to further that, during his time at school, Marcus even joined the choir.
0: Well, that's fitting.
1: Yeah. And it's just kind of ironic to me that he starts off with this like clean cut little preacher boy and turns into like the devil himself. Despite being in the 1964 San Bernardino high school yearbook, Marcus never graduated from high school. He didn't have enough credits. Instead, he dropped out and joined the U.S. Army. He was stationed in Europe and served in the Vietnam War. First, he spent 10 weeks in Fort Sam, Houston, Texas, for medical corpsman training. He served from June 22, 1966 to June 3, 1968, as a medical orderly. He even served as an ambulance driver for a few months with the 695th Medical Ambulance Company stationed in Europe during his service. Marcus was surprisingly honorably discharged after that and spent four years in the inactive reserves. I was surprised to learn that he was a medic, a person who takes care of others so selflessly, after learning what a monster he later became. I just can't even picture him as an ambulance driver being there on someone's worst day of their life, giving them comfort and help. After being discharged from the war, Marcus moved to San Jose. While there, he met a woman named Rosemary or Rose Solorio. Rose was 13 years older than Marcus and already had eight children. And how old was he at this time?
0: In his 20s but by 30, she had had eight children.
1: Mm -hmm. That is a busy woman. That is. She was married when they met, but soon left her husband to be with Marcus. Did she take her children with her? She did. Neighbors stated that Marcus was kind and friendly and spent a lot of time with the kids. Marcus soon moved in with Rosemary and her children. Rosemary became pregnant and gave birth to her ninth child, Marcus's firstborn son, in 1971. Anyone who has had a child, I am sure would agree with me that when you bring that little baby home, you quickly fall in love and become obsessed with the little squish. I can't say how Marcus felt about his newborn son, per se, but what I can say is that his sights were set on a different child, his girlfriend's young daughter, Elizabeth. No. The daughter of the woman who just birthed his child. The little girl who was 20 years younger than he was. Oh, Marcus explained to Rosemary that God wanted her daughter Elizabeth to be with him. It had to be. Somehow, Rosemary got on board, and when her daughter was only eight years old, in 1974, Marcus, age 27, orchestrated a wedding in their home between himself and Elizabeth, a child who hadn't even hit puberty yet. Marcus told this child bride that she belonged to him. That's disturbing. Yeah, eight years old, and he's 27.
0: And he just thinks he has the right to her, that she's his possession now.
1: Yeah, God told him. God wants it, so it must be done. When Elizabeth turned 12, Marcus started sexually abusing his child bride. When she was 14, Marcus and Elizabeth were legally married.
0: What? Mm hmm. Well, I guess they're not actually biologically related. No, they're not. And wouldn't her mother have to sign off on that? She would have had to, but she allowed him to do a ceremony in their home when she was eight. So she's buying into the fact that he is getting his authority from God. Yes, she had to have been. Elizabeth, at
1: this point, thought she was in love with her abuser and wanted to be his legal wife. This is all she knew since the tender age of eight. We are going to see so much brainwashing, grooming, and manipulation throughout this entire case by Marcus. Many people criticize the children in this case, but every single one of them are victims, and to those people who criticize or say unkind things about them, I say, how dare you? We don't want to hear it. Within months after their wedding, Elizabeth gave birth to their first child together. If I did my math correctly, she would have been about five months gestation during the ceremony. This also means that the son Marcus had with Rosemary is the new baby's uncle, as well as their half-brother. And I believe Marcus left his son with Rosemary to start his new life with Elizabeth because I didn't see him mentioned after this.
0: Imagine explaining that relationship to somebody.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's my half brother, but
0: also my uncle. Which one would you be more inclined to introduce him as? My uncle? Because I
1: wouldn't want them to know that my husband had fathered both. (laughs) Yeah, that's so weird. Yeah, it's going to get weirder. Elizabeth would become like a baby machine for Marcus. She gave birth to 10 children for him in total. Wow! One child died as an infant. Five sons and four daughters remained. The first four were born in the 1970s in Santa Clara County. They were Dorian, Adrian, Kiani, and Sabrina. In the 1980s, the rest of the children were born. Elmay was also born in Santa Clara County. Then Donovan, Marcus Jr., Elizabeth, and Serafino were born in Santa Cruz County. Their last child, Gypsy, was born in Fresno County. It was baby Donovan, number six, who died at age six months from spinal meningitis. Oh, that's sad. In 1989, Elizabeth's sister, Rosemary, could no longer care for her seven children and dropped them off to live with Elizabeth and Marcus.
0: No. So people around them must not have known what he was doing to them. I
1: don't know. Her children at this point had already been sexually abused, and she had an alcohol addiction. She knew she couldn't take care of her kids and hope that her sister could do a better job. Sadly, this couldn't have been further from the truth. I do question her judgment, knowing that Marcus had preyed on her sister, but for whatever reason, Rosemary felt her kids would be better off in their care. Yeah, that is shocking. Because she had to have known that they had their
0: pretend marriage at eight years old. But if she's convinced, too, that he is acting with some kind of higher authority... Maybe. Or
1: maybe he really was the best option. Who knows what else was going on around them at that time?
0: That's true, too. And a sad thought. It is.
1: The Wesson home now had 16 children in it. And Marcus was in his glory.
0: Oh, of course. He's got like a whole crop full of victims.
1: Yep. Aside from his sadistic motives towards the children, Marcus saw each one of them as a meal ticket. He refused to work, just like his dad and instead got an increased amount of social assistance each time a child was born. When Elizabeth was later questioned about why her husband never worked to support them, she said, quote, You can't work when you're on welfare. To her, this was their way of life. She didn't understand that this wasn't a common way to live. Usually if someone is on welfare, it's because they can't
0: work. And Marcus absolutely could. I don't think we recognize how often the circumstances that we grow up in just become what we expect everybody else is living like it's very true i remember as i think i've mentioned before my parents fostered children
1: when i was a teenager and we had this one girl in our home where my mom asked her what do you want to be when you grow up and she looked at my mom dumbfounded and was like well what do you mean i was like well what do you want to do when you grow up And she's like i'll just get the check and my mom's like what do you mean what check and she's like well just that check you get every month why would i work when i can just get the check
0: And that happens with everything in our lives. You never really recognize your own family's idiosyncrasies until you spend some time outside of it or have somebody else come in and live with you.
1: It's true. It was like that old story about how a woman always cut the two ends of her roast off. And then later her mom questioned her, why are you cutting the ends of your roast off? And she's like, well, mom, that's what you did. And she's like, I did it because it wouldn't fit in my pot. I didn't have a big (laughs) enough pot. But she just always saw her mom cut off the ends of the roast. So that's what she did, too. Needless to say, the family lived in poverty most of the time. It would be a long time before they had a somewhat secure home. In the early 1980s, they lived in a huge army surplus tent in the Santa Cruz Mountains. During this time, their daughter Kiani recalls having only rice to eat. They also lived on abandoned boats, on bare land, and inside trailers. Marcus liked to be far from the peering eyes of others. Isolation is a tactic of a lot of cult leaders. Absolutely it is. And we definitely see that happening here. In 1981, there was a court declaration stating that Marcus had taken out a loan for $60,000 and had built a 1,700-square-foot house in Santa Cruz County but the family only lived there for three years. At one point, the family lived in a large 26-foot sailboat that was moored to the Santa Cruz Marina. While living on the boat, Marcus instructed the kids to walk up and down the beaches to find cans and bottles to then take them to a recycling plant to receive a refund. The family had no running water, so they would go to public bathrooms to clean up.
0: Could you imagine that with 16 kids? No! How is that going to be inconspicuous to anybody? Exactly. Didn't other people outside of their family recognize what kind of situation this family was living in? Well, as you'll learn, Marcus keeps some of the
1: kids hidden some of the time. Allegedly, Marcus had to be cunning when dealing with the county about living on the boat. He called the county using the name of an actor, Richard Widmark, to inform them that the boat belonged to someone else now and that they needed to approve the boat as a liveaboard so the people who own the boat can have access to the harbor bathroom and shower. <laughs> He was also trying to extend his famous personas privileges at the harbor. He stated in an appeal letter that he would not appear in person at the board meeting so that the decision would be fair if they didn't know who he was, meaning get special privileges since he was so famous. Marcus reportedly had purchased the boat, so I'm unsure why he wasn't just forthright while communicating with the county. That is a bizarre situation. Yeah. The Santa Cruz Harbor Master said that Marcus, quote, just seemed like a counterculture guy in a counterculture community. He was a guy who was really trying to work all the angles. Just to get whatever he could for free. Mm Mm-hmm. And we'll see this through the whole case. Proving this statement, Marcus also wrote a letter addressed to, quote, servants of the law regarding the boat situation and wrote, quote, a man is within the jurisdiction of equality, ethics, and legality, when he takes advantage of loopholes in the law for the betterment of his family. Clearly, he found his swindling ways justifiable.
0: That's a pretty eloquent speech for somebody that didn't finish high school.
1: Actually, we will talk about it, but people do talk about how eloquent his speech is. So it's funny that you picked up on that already. Marcus made a friend while living here named Steve Sobrato. At least I think it was at this boat. It's not the only one that they lived in, so it was challenging to keep track. It might have been on the previous boat to this one. Regardless, Steve later said that Marcus told him that he gave up the corporate world to raise his family in a homeschooled Christian life. This corporate life he was referring to, I assume, was when he briefly worked at a bank after first being married.
0: (laughs) He's quite the storyteller, too.
1: He is. It seemed that Marcus was trying to make his achievements sound way better than they actually were. He was not part of the corporate world. Steve stayed on the family's boat a couple of nights and said that in the morning they had to bail out water that had crept in overnight.
0: Oh, it's not even a good boat? It's not. None of them are.
1: He also said that Marcus invited him over for McDonald's burgers one night, but told him that they had gotten them out of the dumpster. He said the restaurant had to throw food out that didn't sell within a certain amount of time.
0: I was going to ask you, where the heck did they find somebody that had thrown out 16 hamburgers for dinner? He
1: had it down to clockwork knowing when they'd be throwing stuff out. But I thought it's actually nice that he told them, you want a burger? But hey, just so you know, we got them out of the dumpster. So did the guy go over for dinner then?
0: Well, he was there.
1: I don't know if he ate a burger or not. Would you eat a burger if I gave you one from the dumpster?
0: Well, if you're upfront about it, I guess, (laughs) Christy. It's all wrapped up. Yeah. (laughs) fine. Just because they reach the time limit doesn't mean that it's gonna be all bad. Oh,
1: definitely not. I think they were totally like, okay for them to eat. But when you have no job and you have 16 kids to feed, what else are you gonna do? You get pretty ingenious,
0: I'm sure. Mm -hmm.
1: Police discovered what Marcus was doing in 1989 and charged him with welfare fraud and perjury. He apparently hadn't listed the boat as an asset on his welfare forms and had collected more than $20,000 worth of benefits and food stamps that he was not entitled to. He was appointed a public defender but filed a number of motions on his own. The judge rejected one of them completely and referred to it as gibberish. Marcus claimed that the Welfare Department and the Harbour officials were only coming after him because he was on welfare too long and was able-bodied, and was using his educational background to stay on welfare.
0: Uh, yeah, because you're not allowed to do that. (laughs)
1: Right. And that's actually what I said. Yeah, Marcus, (laughs) you were abusing the system. But he didn't see it that way. He seemed to think he was outsmarting the lawmakers and beating them at their own game. He was perfectly capable of working, but decided taking the tax dollars of those who did work was a much better plan. He was above it all. I read varying things about the outcome of these charges. Some say Marcus pled guilty to these charges and others said he was found guilty. Either way, he was given five years probation, was given several different fines, and served 180 days in jail. I assume that Elizabeth had to figure out how to take care of everyone during the six-month incarceration, and reportedly she would argue that he was jailed for contempt of court, not because of welfare fraud or perjury. And I question with a husband like Marcus, why try to save face at all?
0: I don't know. That almost sounds believable. Could be. I can just envision him arguing with the judge.
1: Yeah, because he thought he was smarter than everybody. Right.
0: So then you'd be held in contempt. And that probably was the reason why he was sent to jail.
1: That could have been. But he was convicted on those charges as well. Oh, okay. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> she just doesn't want to own up to the whole thing.
1: Maybe. I think she was just totally brainwashed by Marcus as well. She believed whatever he wanted her to believe.
0: He must have been really charismatic. Oh, he had
1: to have been. He was described as, like, friendly. He came off sounding intelligent. Some people thought he was a great guy. In 2003, the Wesson family made their way to Tamale Bay, which is about an hour north of San Francisco. They found an even bigger boat this time to live in, a 63-foot tugboat.
0: Ooh, be like a mansion.
1: It would feel like that. Again, there was no bathroom. The boats they lived in were often abandoned, which meant that they were in pretty rough shape and were rotting away. These were not glamorous boats by any means. So not
0: a mansion. Mm -mm. They tripled their space, I guess.
1: Yeah, it would feel like a mansion to them. Marcus acquired a dinghy boat that he would sit in and make his daughters row him to the tiny nearby village of Marshall. A person from this village later said that they would row him to the shore like they were slaves. He said, quote, I had them pegged as some sort of Jonestown cult.
0: Oh, and sounds like they were right on the mark. Mm hmm.
1: Residents also noticed that the girls all had to walk behind their father while wearing long black skirts and veils. Even in the hot weather, the girls were always covered while out in public from their necks down. As they walked, they had to look at the ground and not at their surroundings. So you can imagine how odd this would seem this big guy being rowed in a boat by all of his daughters and then they have to single-file walk behind him, dressed in black, covered, looking at the ground.
0: But how great for him. He thinks he has this whole little entourage of slaves behind him. Well, he did.
1: The girls didn't say much, but some locals noted that some of them spoke with lisps. Marcus was described by others as having an extensive vocabulary, like we said, and could express himself in flowery language. He was a larger man, weighing in at around 300 pounds, and went from originally being very clean-cut to sporting unkept, lengthy dreadlocks. A neighbor described Marcus's hair as, quote, one big, long, greasy dreadlock. It was caked in dirt and oil. It did kind of look like that from his picture. Uh Uh-huh. That fall, the authorities made the family vacate from the boat because it was ruled unsafe. And I'm so curious why their family and living conditions was not investigated further. How is evicting them helping them? The police had no way of knowing what was to come. It just always sad in retrospect to see that there was more than one opportunity for someone
0: to step in before this nightmare continued. I'm just shocked. Like you said, they knew enough to intervene to not leave them in an unsafe houseboat. But they didn't intervene to actually take them to a safer environment.
1: Or make sure that all of these children are properly being cared for.
0: Well, very obviously they're not. If they don't even have the necessities of life like water and proper food. That doesn't come from a garbage can.
1: Right. But Marcus is a schmoozer too. Who knows what he said? He's quite manipulative in the way that he speaks. Eventually, the brood made their way to Fresno, California. Here they managed to purchase an office building that was 1,066 square feet big, which really isn't that much space for that many people.
0: Well, and probably a wide open space, right? Yeah.
1: It just almost looked to me like a trailer. The building was on 761 West Hammond Avenue. Marcus had a yellow school bus that he parked in the driveway. They had lived in the converted bus at times prior to moving to Fresno. They lived in so many different places and situations that I could not list them all. One of the ways that Marcus was able to purchase this property was because as soon as his children were able to get jobs, he would send them off to work at jobs that he had arranged for
0: them. What? He couldn't go to work himself, but he would send his children.
1: Uh-huh. When the children received their paychecks, they were instructed to immediately hand it over to Marcus. If Marcus felt one of his kids were getting too friendly with co-workers, he would make them quit and get them a job elsewhere. They were not allowed to have friends outside of the family. He wanted his family all to himself. They all belonged to Marcus. Most of the kids worked at McDonald's restaurants, but then would work their way up to being allowed to work at the Radisson Hotel in downtown Fresno. The children were taught that it was a good thing to turn over their paychecks to their father and uncle. Kiana said, quote, he was our financial planner. He could take $20 and make it seem like $200. We knew about money. While other people our age had no assets, no home, nothing, we gave our money to Marcus to invest. That's how we got our land, our bus. He even got us jobs. Everything we had was because of Marcus. What? These statements feel to me like this ideology was ingrained into the children. It was all they knew. They didn't know that they were being abused. Marcus said he couldn't work because he had to keep his divine knowledge anonymous. His niece Sophina said that, quote, the outside world had lost eternal life. It was nothing but distractions.
0: It is so scary when they start mingling religion in with control and... Yeah, it takes it to a
1: whole different level. And it's so powerful. And that's why most cults intertwine
0: it and distort the religion that they first started off as. Right. And you can see how devastating it would be to children that are being raised with this mentality. Yeah, they don't know anything else. No, they wouldn't even know up from down for them. No,
1: like right now, if you and I tried to take our kids' paychecks, they would be like, you're off your rocker. They would not be happy about it. Where these kids were grateful. Look at all the things that Marcus has done with our money. He got us a bus, Christy. That's right. Not realizing that that's your parents' responsibility to provide you with a home. And he wasn't even doing that. No, they're now finally in this office building, but it's very small
0: but I guess it seems way better than a boat where they don't even have a washroom.
1: Right. Marcus was addicted to control and was such a narcissist that in 2002, he submitted a manuscript that he had written about his life to Vantage Press, a publishing company in New York. They turned down his manuscript titled In the Night of the Light for the Dark because they said it didn't make any sense. I think he thought everyone else thought he was as important as he thought he was. He's quite deluded. Yeah. Later in 2004, Marcus would be told that he had until March 12th of that year to resolve zoning issues concerning his property in Fresno. The converted school bus was deemed too large to be legally parked in a neighborhood, and the office building didn't meet the standards for residential housing. He would be issued a citation from inspectors ordering him to vacate the property or obtain the proper permits to stay. But let's put a pin in this date. It is when things are going to come to a head. We are going to come back to it. We just have a lot to cover still before we get there. To feed 16 children, Marcus would often make them dumpster dive for food. Despite his poverty, Marcus always seemed to have enough money to buy himself dinner from the fast food restaurants.
0: And then he'd go around back and get dinner for everybody
1: else. Yes. He ate McDonald's and cookies while his children, nieces, and nephews ate literal garbage. I can picture him taking his kids to the restaurant and sending them out back to scavenge while he went inside and placed his order. That is
0: just so wrong. And where was Elizabeth?
1: I'm assuming she was out at the dumpsters with the kids. The kids would also be fed things like pinto beans to survive while Marcus continued to eat fast food treats and cookies. Marcus wanted to be able to control what his children learned and believed. And when I say children from now on, it will include the nieces and nephews that he was raising. To achieve this goal, Marcus forbade the children from going to school. He homeschooled them instead. He used flashcards, some textbooks,
0: and his handwritten Bible. Wait, he wrote his own Bible? Yes. Transcribed it? Or he was like writing his own scripture?
1: He took the King James Version of the Bible and altered it which we'll talk
0: about. He made his own version. Mm -hmm. Wow, this is always such a similar path.
1: It really is. He would also have the older children assist in teaching the younger ones things like reading and math. One of his nieces would later admit that she could not read or write, so I'm not sure how much secular education was actually taking place. I think his priority was placed on the spiritual lessons.
0: Well, and if they didn't know how to read and write on their own, then there was less chance of them actually developing knowledge and attitudes that went against his own. Mm -hmm. It kept them
1: dependent on him. So remember how Marcus liked to play preacher as a child? Well, now he had his own little congregation to preach to. Every day the children were taught Bible lessons. For a while, they stayed connected to the Seventh-day Adventist Church and attended multiple spiritual retreats put on by that church. However, it was said that Marcus altered many verses in the Bible to further manipulate and control his children. He taught them that Jesus Christ was a vampire and that they were all vampires as well, except they had souls like Jesus did, and that's why they could go outside in the sunlight.
0: What? hmm
1: What was the advantage of being a vampire? I don't know. This was totally odd to me that this whole vampire stuff now gets introduced and it stays in the case. He just developed a fascination with vampires? Well, and maybe it's because of this. He said there was no conflict between being a vampire and belief in God because both were immortal. Oh, so they just go hand in hand. If a vampire is immortal and Jesus is immortal, they must be the same. Marcus gave the female children vampire middle names and named himself Javam Marksuspire, a name he created from the words Jesus, Marcus, and Vampire.
0: Wow, he is going a little off the rails. But totally
1: committed to it. Eventually, Marcus started to tell his children that he was Jesus Christ. This
0: guy is crazy. (laughs) I know. (laughs) He went from being a vampire and now he is actually Jesus Christ. Yes. Okay.
1: Because he was the Almighty, the family owed him their complete obedience. They were also ordered to call him Master or Lord. And they are probably terrified and did it. Oh, they did. Yep. Like a doomsday cult, Marcus instilled fear in his family by preaching that the end was near. If the children didn't perform their school or Bible study duties, Marcus would strike them with a stick that had duct tape wrapped around it, or he would use a small baseball bat to hit them. His daughters and nieces had to be at his beck and call. They were made to wash his greasy dreadlocks and scratch his armpits and belly for him. His armpits? Yes! Oh, that's so gross. I know. My skin is crawling. Yeah. He's this greasy, dirty guy. And come on, girls, scratch my armpits and my belly. Why his armpits? I don't know. Because he's disgusting. I wouldn't even scratch my husband's armpits. (laughs) That's just so yuck.
0: Yeah, that is so disgusting.
1: But he was wanting them to treat him like he was their master.
0: And do you think it had something to do with humiliating them so they would continue to be submissive?
1: Yeah, I think it was probably showing his dominance over them.
0: Yeah, because that's a disgusting thing.
1: It really is. And to be able to continue this, like I said, the kids were not allowed to associate with other children. Marcus kept them hidden from the public. Many neighbors later said that they had no idea so many kids were living next to them. When the children did interact with anyone in public, They were described as polite and well-behaved because they hardly spoke. They weren't allowed to. Right. Despite the abuse and segregation, the family would later express that they did have good times as a family. Marcus would have the family put on plays and concerts and would have ugly contests where everyone had to dress up as ugly as they could and see who was the ugliest.
0: Okay, that sounds fun. I
1: thought that actually sounded fun. You might have to do that. Have an ugly party. (laughs) Rosa remembered that he would also sometimes throw a handful of change into the center of the room so all the children could play scramble. He would stand back and watch them all race and scramble to pick up the coins. And did they get to keep the change as a prize? I'm assuming they did. It sounded like it. Okay. But I almost thought he's standing back like, my little peasants feed off my change. Like, did he get some kind of gratification out of watching them scramble for
0: his little leftovers? Oh, probably. But you can totally see how he's intermixing good things so that they enjoy being with them. Like, it's not all bad. And so now they're more motivated to stay. Right. Yeah, he is
1: very good at his craft. Kiani said she remembered the family spending time at the beach in Monterey or Santa Cruz and would sometimes make trips to Fresno or Washington State. Her dad would make mixtapes for them to listen to on the drives. She also said he taught them how to swim and fish, go sailing, and that he made them skateboards. While living in Fresno, the boys would skateboard while the girls played in the water at Woodward Park. Kiani also recalled them celebrating the 12 days before Christmas with fun things assigned to each day. Things like Gingerbread Day, Dad Cook's Day, Spaghetti Day, and Trade Jobs Day. She said, those were the best times of our lives. It was fun. Serafino said, quote, My dad taught us how to build things, how to use our hands instead of buying things. We had hobby boats, a galleon, sailboats on the bus that was in storage. There were pictures we painted. We learned a lot about working with wood and foam. His wife Elizabeth said that her husband was, quote, good at building things, creative. He was a very imaginative, loving husband and father. To him, the most valuable, precious thing in the world were children. And that's why he abuses them? Well, I think they're the most important thing to him because he feels like he owns them. To me, reading this really supports the idea that Marcus had raised his family in a cult-like structure. Despite the horrible things that were happening, Marcus managed to make them feel like they were a loving family and made them totally dependent on him for everything, even the good times that they shared. The children were described as being somber by onlookers, but when Marcus would allow it, they were able to laugh and have fun.
0: When they were allowed.
1: Yeah, so he was like the source for everything for them. Money, food, life, even laughter. As the children grew older, Marcus decided that he had to segregate his children not only from the general public, but from one another as well. As the daughters started to develop, Marcus was worried that the sons would become sexually attracted to them. Because he was. Exactly. To stop these feelings from happening, Marcus kept the girls and boys separated and controlled their interactions one with another. The boys often had to sleep in a shack in the woods to keep them from the girls. You see, in true cult-like fashion, Marcus wanted all the girls to himself. Starting at age eight, Marcus groomed the girls for worse to come by fondling their chests and genitals. Next, he taught them how to perform oral sex on him, followed by eventually raping each one of them on a regular basis. And that started at the age of eight? At eight. But that's when he took his first bride. Oh, that's so young. Ruby, one of his nieces, later said in court that the routine rapes were referred to as loving and would say it was a father's, quote, way to show affection for his daughter. Can you even imagine? He would call on a daughter and basically tell her it was time for her loving and she would comply. He is an
0: absolute pig of a dirtbag. I can't even imagine. They're so isolated that this would just seem normal to them.
1: Yeah, she said this is how a dad shows affection. To try and justify his actions, Marcus would read the family passages from the Bible, the ones that he had made up, while instances when a man had multiple wives. He would say to them, quote, God wants a man to have more than one wife. To go along with this, he also taught them that God wanted them to produce his children. Since Armageddon was coming, all the girls would need to ultimately become his wives. With his wife's permission, Marcus performed marriage ceremonies with two of his own daughters and three of his nieces. To perform the ceremony, they placed their hands on the Bible while reciting marital vows. Marcus quickly went to work to impregnate all of them. At times, more than one of them would be pregnant at the same time. It may get a little confusing, but I am going to list the names of the girls he married and their children, because we are coming back to them before this case is over. And this is where I'm going to give Melissa my little cheat sheet that I had to write out to keep things straight. (laughs) Make sense? Yep. Okay. He married his oldest daughter, Kiani, and she gave birth to two daughters, Illabel and Jiva. Jiva's name was created to combine the words Jesus and vampire. He married his second oldest daughter, Sabrina, who birthed him a son named Marshy. He married his oldest niece, Sophina, who gave birth to a boy named Jonathan. Okay. His niece, Ruby, bore him a daughter named Aviv after their marriage. She was only 13 at the time of the wedding, and he was 44. And his other niece, Rosa, gave birth to a son named Ethan and a daughter named Sedona after their wedding.
0: This is just so crazy. Yeah.
1: Altogether, if I did my math correctly, Marcus fathered 18 children. Marcus had convinced these girls that they wanted to marry him and bear his children He told them that they were like surrogates for his original child bride, Elizabeth. He got enjoyment out of making them jealous of one another, so that they would all pine for his time and affection. He would encourage their competition. None of them could see him for what he was, a predatory pedophile. I mentioned already that Marcus tried to keep his daughters and nieces separated from his sons and nephews. Most of the boys had no idea what was happening behind closed doors. The girls were not allowed to date or talk to boys. One of the sons, Marcus Jr., later said in court that he did find it strange that his sisters never dated. When he questioned one of his sisters about it, she said, quote, I'm not into it right now. Ruby, one of the nieces, was one of the few to display any type of rebellion against Marcus and his sick ideology. She was caught flirting with boys and received a severe beating for doing so. She ran away three different times, but was always made to return, Reportedly, Elizabeth, the mom, and wife even played her part in convincing Ruby to return. Plus, her daughter was at the property, and she was not allowed to take her with her, so Ruby would feel torn and return to be with her child. And Elizabeth would use this as her way of coaching her to come back. You have to come and be with your daughter. That would have been such a hard decision. People looked down on Elizabeth, but she was absolutely being controlled by Marcus. He was all she knew from the age of eight. She was not allowed to participate in the child raising and was treated as Marcus's servant. All the girls were told that if they ever left, their children had to stay behind. They belonged to the almighty
0: Marcus. They were his children unto the Lord. Well, and you can see how he's created this atmosphere that would just promote jealousies between them because he's the sole source of everything. Yeah. That they would have to establish themselves and try to vie for his attention
1: right and he's taught them that when i rape you that's showing my love to you so they're jealous if the other girls are getting raped and they're not
0: well they're not even
1: considering it rape no they're not they're it's referred to as loving when the girls would turn up pregnant marcus told the boys that the girls had been artificially inseminated viewing any male figures as a threat to his coven that he had created As soon as the boys were old enough, they had to move out. However, Marcus continued to take money from their paychecks to support his growing incestuous family, even after they moved out. I believe they were told that they had to do this for two years afterwards. So did any of them go on
0: to live, like, normal lives? They do,
1: and we will talk about
0: it. I will give you an update at the end.
1: Because remember, at this point, he is too lazy to lift a finger and earn a wage himself – and is more important than anyone else around him, so he had no problem making them move out and taking their paychecks still. And I believe some of the daughters that had gotten older had moved out as well eventually, but same thing, had to turn over their money. Even dirtbags need idols, and in the early 90s, Marcus chose David Koresh as his. As I mentioned at the beginning of this case, David Koresh was a cult leader in Waco, Texas. David had taken multiple wives and spawned many children. Marcus taught his children about David. He said, quote, This man is just like me. He is making children for the Lord. That's what we should be doing, making children for the Lord. There's two Jesus Christ now. Mm. In 1993, the Waco compound was raided, and I believe 76 Davidians perished. Marcus used this as a teaching moment and told the children, quote, This is how the world is attacking God's people. He reminded them that he was Jesus and police officers were Satan. It was clear that Marcus was using fear to manipulate and control everyone in his family. And with this fear, Marcus taught his clan that the family must be together no matter what. He said it was better for them to die than to be split up. He named his daughter Sabrina and his niece Rosa his strong soldiers and said they were to kill any family member who would dare to betray him as their leader.
0: Their own family members. Mm -hmm.
1: If they're going to betray him, you have to kill them. You're my strong
0: soldiers. So he's creating little secret spies in amongst his troops.
1: Yep. He also told the girls that if anyone, including social services or any other government agency, showed up to split the family apart, they would have to enforce their murder suicide pact. They were to kill all the children and then kill themselves. However, Marcus himself would make the biggest sacrifice of all he would live so he could explain to everyone what happened and to basically defend the family.
0: What? No way.
1: Seriously. You guys all have to die, but I will make that sacrifice and not join the Lord yet because I will live so I can explain what happened.
0: And everybody was on board with this plan.
1: They were. But he's a little weasel. He actually held detailed monthly training meetings to go over the murder-suicide plan and teach the older girls how to fire a gun. Like a fire drill.
0: Yeah. Just want to be prepared. Exactly.
1: Possibly to show the family that he was serious. Marcus purchased 10 mahogany coffins from an antique dealer. They cost him between $400 and $500 per coffin. Marcus told the dealer that he was buying the coffins to repurpose the wood into furniture. He made the kids help him load them up into the bus and then place them inside their already crammed house. Some of the reports I read said that some of the children slept inside the coffins because there wasn't anywhere else to sleep. Some believe this also played into his vampire fixation. Vampires slept in coffins, after
0: all. It totally does sound like that. That's what I think. But wait a minute. 10 coffins for 20 people? They were going to double up?
1: Some of the boys had moved out by now. Some of the older girls had moved out. Okay. Yeah. But it still wouldn't have been enough for all of them.
0: Well, he wasn't going with them, so he didn't need one. That's true.
1: Things would come to a grisly head on March 12, 2004. The deadline that the county had given Marcus to comply to the residential housing permits or vacate the premises. However, although this would have added stress to the Wesson family, the bloodshed that was about to ensue had nothing to do with permits. Ruby, the niece who had tried running away multiple times prior, finally escaped and moved out when she turned 22 years old. Her sister Sophina also left. Sadly, Marcus kept true to his word and would not allow Ruby to take her daughter Aviv with her, nor would he allow Sophina to take her son Jonathan out of the family home. After being away from the cult-like family and Marcus's evil ways, the sisters started to realize just how messed up being raised in the Wesson home was. This way of living was not how most other people lived. They knew that Marcus would just continue to impregnate the girls living in the home and would even likely move on to the young children when they turned 8 years old. Oh, that's a scary thought. Yeah, because he had done it to them. They knew they had to do something to help the children – they bravely decided that they had to confront Marcus and rescue the children.
0: So they're not going to go to the authorities, they're just going to confront him on their own?
1: Yes. And it kind of escalated because the women had also gotten wind that Marcus was planning to relocate the family to Washington State to be closer to his abhorrent parents, likely because of the deadline set by the county. So rather than comply, we're just going to move on. That's what he always does.
0: Right. That's why they changed location so many times probably growing up.
1: Mm Mm-hmm the girls arrived at the house with some other people, including extended family members. So they didn't go just the two of them. They brought this entourage of people to support and help them. They knew this wasn't going to be easy. They arrived there at 2.15 that afternoon. Sophina stormed inside the house saying, I came to get my son. She found Jonathan and started leading him out by his hand. She was stopped by her sister Rosa. Rosa grabbed Jonathan away from his mother and put him in the back bedroom where all the other children were.
0: Because she's been declared one of the enforcers, now she's doing her duty.
1: Right. For us outside looking in, it's so mind-boggling that another woman is going to do this to a woman, like stop her from taking her child. But she believes so much in the cause that she's like, no, your son belongs to Marcus.
0: Right. It's hard to imagine that level of brainwashing, but it happens. In this case, it's so strong. Well, I wonder if it's a similar scenario to when kidnap victims actually defend their kidnapper.
1: Yeah, like Stockholm Syndrome. hmm Oh, absolutely. Because they believed they loved Marcus and wanted to be his wives, wanted mm. to bear his children. Right. After Rosa snatched Jonathan away from Sophina, the other adult children then forced Sophina out of the house. Once she was thrown out, Marcus stood in the doorway to prevent her from getting back in. Remember, he's a large, 300-pound man. She was not going to get past him.
0: Yeah, he's huge.
1: Yeah. Marcus's army then began belittling Sophina and Ruby by calling them whores, Lucifer, Judas, and bees. Marcus's daughter Sabrina, one of his strong soldiers, also came out of the house. She yelled at her cousin Ruby. She pointed at her father's feet and told her to, quote, bow down to her master. She then turned and ran back into the house. Things were getting heated, so the police were called. They arrived at around 2.35 p.m., 20 minutes after all this started. Could you imagine
0: being that officer and trying to come into this situation and navigate who's who? (laughs) No, I'm sure they didn't have a little cheat sheet like I just gave you. Yeah. When
1: police first arrived, they noted that they could hear a baby crying inside the house. Marcus continued to stand guard at the door. He wouldn't let them in without a warrant, but he stayed serene as he spoke with the officers. He seemed to be the only calm one, so police believed that he
0: was going to cooperate. Really, he's just standing guard. It's Sabrina and Rosa that have been told that if anybody comes to threaten our family, then we have to enact the murder-suicide pact.
1: Exactly. And the police don't know this when they come. As far as the police were concerned, this was just a custody dispute. Sofina and Ruby had birth certificates for their children, and since Marcus didn't want people to know that he had raped his children, his name was not on the documents. Police called the city attorney and were told that they had no legal right to invade the home. Marcus told police he was going to go inside to say goodbye to the children. He's like, okay, I'll go say goodbye and you can take them. So the police did not stop him as he closed the door and went back inside the home. And they're just out there twiddling their thumbs waiting.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Because they
1: believe that he's going to come back. They do. Police were able to continue a conversation from outside with Marcus until they suddenly heard him run to the back of the house. It is believed that he locked himself in there and barricaded the door. Police were then informed that Marcus owned a gun. At this point, police called for backup, including negotiators, and the SWAT team to come help them extradite the children from the home. But they did not enter. They were waiting for help to arrive. The door to the Wesson home remained closed for
0: 80 minutes. While they're waiting for backup.
1: Yes. And this part blew my mind. 80 minutes that the police stood outside waiting for SWAT to arrive. For an hour and 20 minutes, that is a long time. After the 80 minutes, and as the police backup and SWAT were positioning themselves around the building, Marcus again appeared at the door. This time, he stood there covered in blood. Police immediately rushed into the building, but it would be too late. Officer Eloy Escarino was among the officers who first entered the house. He immediately noticed caskets stacked against a wall in the living room. With his gun drawn and his flashlight on, he hollered out to the children to come out now and told them it was safe. He continued forward as the other officers searched the rooms he passed until he reached the very last room. The room was dark, but Escarino could tell that there was some type of mass on the floor in the center of the room. He was not prepared for what he was about to see when he flicked on that bedroom light. In the middle of the room was a massive pile of bodies, and blood was everywhere. He could tell that the pile consisted of two women, but the rest were all children, even babies. As you can imagine, a giant amount of blood was pooling around them on the floor. Escarino yelled to his colleagues to call an ambulance and rushed over to check the victims for a pulse. They were all warm to the touch, but he wasn't able to find a pulse on any of them. He was a veteran officer, but yelled out in anger at the scene he had just discovered. They said he totally broke down.
0: Ugh. Just a mountain of bodies. Mm -hmm.
1: There were nine bodies in total. Each one of them had been fatally shot in the eye with a twenty-two caliber gun. Clothing had been intertwined in between the bodies. Sabrina's dead body was laying on top of the pile. The gun was found underneath her arm. Marcus was immediately arrested. He remained calm and cooperative. He asked the officers to use three handcuffs to accommodate his giant wrists. SWAT showed up too late. But when the police saw Marcus with blood-soaked clothes, that gave them cause to
0: storm the residence. Now, it does seem a little bit too late, but I do understand why that actually has to happen. It does. There has to be a protocol. But 80 minutes was a long time. That is a long time.
1: Officers would later say that this day would be the most traumatic day of their entire careers, resulting in a large number of them having to seek counseling afterwards, and some even had to take administrative leave. All officers had to be later cleared via an assessment in order to be permitted to return to work. As I read out the list of victims, I cannot even fathom how horrific this scene would have been to witness. They were as follows, I believe piled in this order from bottom to top. Sedona Vadra Wesson, age 1, daughter of Rosa, Marcus's daughter slash grandniece. Jiva Saint Floden Vistbre Wesson, age 1, daughter of Kiani, Marcus's daughter slash granddaughter. Marshy St. Christopher Wesson, age 1, son of Sabrina, Marcus's son slash grandson. Ethan St. Laurent Wesson, age 4, son of Rosa, Marcus's son slash grandnephew. Jonathan St. Charles Wesson, age 7, son of Safina, Marcus's son slash grandnephew. Aviv Dominique Wesson, age 7, daughter of Ruby, Marcus's daughter slash grandniece. Illabelle Carey Wesson, age 8, daughter of Kiani, Marcus's daughter-slash-granddaughter. Elizabeth Brahe Kina Wesson, age 17, Marcus's daughter. Sabrina April Wesson, age 25, Marcus's daughter, one of those he referred to as his strong soldier. No one else was inside the home when the massacre took place. Marcus was the only one to emerge alive, just like he said he would be in his original plan. Relatives of the Wesson family would blame the police for not acting sooner in this tragic situation. Interestingly, police testified that they did not hear gunshots at any point in time. Neighbors, on the other hand, did report hearing shots.
0: Was there silence around the gun? I didn't read a report of that. Was there pillows around the victim's bodies?
1: I didn't find any evidence saying that they had shot through like piles of clothing or a mattress or bedding or anything like that. Hmm. So it's very odd. After 57-year-old Marcus was arrested and taken into custody, 6 police chaplains were sent to the building to comfort the officers who had to collect evidence and remove the bodies. Apparently, it took hours to carefully untangle the bodies and clothing. It seemed like they had been stacked almost ritualistically. Finally, starting at around 10:30 p.m., bodies began to be removed from the home. The process would take hours. Some of the children were so small that officers just carried them out held gently in their arms, encased in tiny white body bags. Oh, that is so sad. I saw crime scene photos of this, and it is beyond heartbreaking to see. You can see it on the officers' faces how devastated they are.
0: And there were so many little ones. Three one-year-olds.
1: I think one of them was one and the other ones were closer to 18 months. Some of the surviving family members looked on as the bodies were removed and the home was processed. One of the women was so distraught that she collapsed and had to be rushed to the hospital by ambulance. Elizabeth had to be held up by two of her sons after realizing what had happened.
0: Where was she? Outside. Oh yeah, because of the altercation, there were people inside and outside the house.
1: Right, a lot of them had come out to be fighting with the two nieces.
0: So can you imagine what it would have been like to stand on the other side of that door for 80 minutes? No. I wonder what was going through their minds. Or were they all just fighting
1: during that time? I don't know what was happening.
0: Were they thinking that this is what's going to happen?
1: Well, it sounds like they were pretty distraught afterwards.
0: Hmm. So I don't know.
1: Serafino, one of Marcus's sons, said he always looked up to his father and seeing him in handcuffs tore him apart. He said he had always seen his father as a mighty lion, and this was the first time he ever saw his dad look defeated. The mayor arrived on the scene around 11.30 p.m. He said, quote, This is obviously a terrible, horrific tragedy. It appears we have the perpetrator in custody. The only thing we can do now is mourn. We mourn for the kids. We mourn for the police who had to be out here. We mourn for the community. He also stated that the city of Fresno would never be the same after this mass murder. It was the largest one in the city's history. And I think it still is. I hope that it is still is that there wasn't one that beat this. It was nine people total? Yes. While all of this was happening, Marcus was charged with nine counts of penal code, section 187 murder. He was also charged with multiple counts of rape. He was questioned for hours, to which he willingly participated in. He was eventually taken to be held in Fresno County Jail. His bail was set at $9 million. Good. Mm-hmm. Community members were devastated and were said to have raised money to help cover funeral costs. I believe the funeral home greatly helped with this as well. However, this story did not get much coverage nationally, which is just so shocking.
0: Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard this one before.
1: Marcus's trial was an emotionally filled one. Many testimonies made by family members proved just how manipulated they had been at his hand. Some of his children would later comment that it took some time for them to see what was really taking place in their family home. Prosecutor Lisa Gomoyan encouraged family to testify to prove how controlling Marcus was, but some wanted to defend him. He was their master after all. One of the nieces testified that she had wanted to leave prior to all of this happening. When Marcus found out, he stabbed her in the chest. The jury let out a gasp when she showed the scar on her chest. Oh man! The same niece testified that Marcus had beat her son when he was only one month old on his legs until they bled because the baby would not stop crying.
0: I'm sure that didn't help. No, that's what I thought. Marcus's
1: daughter, Kiani, defended a passage in her diary that said, quote, we lived for Christ, now we must die for Christ, as only being a figure of speech. His niece Rosa proudly wore her wedding ring during the trial to represent her love for Marcus. She said she was still willing to die for him. When questioned about the sexual abuse starting at the age of eight, Rosa said, quote, he did it so we would be better women.
0: And this is a person that he killed two of her children. Mm -hmm. Wow. I think that would have been all bets off as soon as she killed my kids. But they were taught that they belonged to Marcus. They were just surrogates. Right. And he had prepared them for this plan for a long time, that this was just part of the plan if somebody tried to attack our family.
1: Yeah, they had monthly drills. Kiani and Rosa stated that their sexual relationship with their father and uncle were consensual. Kiani said, quote, whatever happened in the home was by agreement and talk. It was totally by choice. We had a democratic family. She also said she was proud of her father. Rosa said, quote, there was never any rape, nothing forcible. And these statements break my heart because at the time they believed them.
0: How can you have choice without being fully informed?
1: Right. And if you're going to get stabbed in the chest for talking about leaving,
0: that's not democracy. No, that's coercion.
1: Elizabeth, Marcus's legal wife, exclaimed that she was unaware of the abuse. She said, quote, how can I protect them if they didn't tell me? They never told me anything. However, she did say during the trial, quote, according to the newspaper, my whole family, my way of life is not normal.
0: So she was just starting to realize that
1: this was maybe not okay. It's
0: so hard to fathom that it's not blatantly obvious that it's not okay.
1: Right. But we have to remember, he took her when she was eight. Marcus was represented by public defenders, Peter Jones and Ralph Torres. They argued that Sabrina, Marcus's 25-year-old daughter, who was found on top of the deceased pile, was responsible for shooting all of the children and then killing herself. She honored a murder-suicide pact on her own. Marcus never told any of them to do that.
0: Yeah, right. To which I say baloney. What were all the drills for then if he wasn't telling them that that's what they had to do?
1: Yeah, we know this is absolutely false. Hogwash. Yep. The murder weapon was a stainless steel Ruger MK2 Target 22 caliber handgun and was found with her body. Her DNA was also found on the gun. Marcus did not have gunpowder residue on his hands when tested, but neither did Sabrina. Logically, Marcus could easily have put the gun in Sabrina's hand to transfer DNA on it. Also, it would have been difficult for Sabrina to turn the gun to place the end against her eye and then use her thumbs to shoot. How did the gun end up placed underneath her arm? Would it not have been in her hand? There's a lot to consider.
0: Doable, but not a natural position. No,
1: unless being shot in the eye had something to do with their ritual.
0: But none of them had any gunpowder residue on them.
1: Right. And that makes me feel like maybe he cleaned up and took his DNA and fingerprints off of the gun, put it onto Sabrina. It's really hard to say. This gets a little muddled.
0: But gunpowder residue goes everywhere, especially after nine shootings.
1: Yeah. It just said it was not on their hands. Okay. That being said, the prosecution stated that even if Marcus never fired a single shot that day, he was still every bit a killer. He used incest, fear, and perverted Christian teachings to persuade his children to carry out such an act. This meant that Sabrina could have been the one to shoot each one of the children in the eye and then take her own life. Coroners also determined that Sabrina was shot more than an hour after all of the other victims. Hmm. Lisa Gamoyan described Marcus as a murderer who wielded mind control like a weapon. And this actually made me think of Charles Manson. She quoted Marcus's statements he made to his children when he said, quote, It's better to die than have the government or some agency break up the family. Are you ready to die? If Child Protective Services ever comes in,
0: we are to kill the kids and kill ourselves so we
1: can be with the Lord.
0: Yeah, he had taught them that right from the very beginning. So he's totally responsible, even if he didn't hold the gun himself.
1: Totally. 100%. Defender Ralph Torres admitted that Marcus was a flawed man who engaged in Deviant behavior, but then tried to redeem him by saying, quote, But he is a deeply religious man, a zealot who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I thought, Is that really supposed to make his actions okay? I hate to break it to them, but I am confident in saying that the actual Lord did not support Marcus's actions in the least
0: bit. Yeah, that is just a bizarre statement.
1: I hate when that gets used, but he was a good Christian um no, no,
0: very obviously he was not <laughs>
1: he was not.
0: None of those teachings are supportive.
1: No, they're opposite. (laughs) If he pulled the trigger or not, on June seventeenth, two 2005, Marcus Wesson was found guilty on all nine counts of murder and 14 counts of rape and molestation. He was sentenced to death 10 days later, but remains on death row at San Quentin State Prison in California.
0: It makes me happy that he's in San Quentin. Me
1: too. Because it sounds like such an awful place. Yeah. All the really terrible ones go there, and rightfully so. I'm glad he's there. But with that being said, he is protected from the general population inside prison. What? Yep, he gets a TV and gets to eat chocolate bars. This seems so unjust considering he starved his children and made them eat from the trash. But people send him letters and money and even come visit him.
0: Who's sending him money and letters? Dirtbags.
1: They have to be dirtbags. Who does that? He also managed to somehow claim not only his own, but his wife's stimulus check as well from inside the prison. What? Yeah. I watched an interview with one of his youngest daughters later, and she was talking about it. She says, yeah, he took my mom's stimulus check. I am just flabbergasted. Yeah, you should not be getting any kind of stimulus checks while you're in prison. No. It's just wild to me, but he was so good at knowing the law and working those loopholes. He even said it in that one statement that he should be able to do that.
0: So was she signing them over to him? No.
1: Years later, Mark Cutler, who I believe represented Marcus in one of his appeals, said that Marcus's execution will likely take decades. At the time of his statement, Marcus was 64 years old, and this summer I believe he'll be turning 77. Mark Cutler said, quote, I can't see any possibility in the world that Marcus will be executed. He will die a natural death long before the case is over. He continued to say, quote, most people's reaction is always that there's got to be some way to make this faster, but there really isn't. The chief of Fresno Police, Jerry Dyer, said that regardless of the financial cost, quote, Marcus Wesson is the very reason we should have the death penalty. Life in prison for him would be an injustice to his nine children he killed. And I say not even to mention the life-altering abuse he inflicted on
0: his remaining posterity and family members. Right. But life in prison is exactly what he's getting because they're not going to put him to death. No. So how is it really any different? It's not. Except it costs a lot more money. Exactly. A life sentence is actually cheaper. It's true. And so in this case, they're both the same. He's going to spend out his whole life in prison, except he gets how many multiple repeated attempts to appeal his case, to drag all of that evidence out again and have it rehashed. And
1: yeah. And in the meantime, he's watching TV and eating candy bars. Yeah. It just seems very unjust. It does. Marcus has made appeals, continuing to lay the blame solely on his daughter. But thankfully, none of them have been granted. And I would be shocked if he ever was released. Oh, yeah. Nine counts of murder? I don't think so. As I mentioned earlier, it took some time for some of Marcus's children to recognize just how wrong Marcus had taught and treated them. Some of them spoke out afterwards. Dorian later said that Marcus told him, If you've seen God, you've seen me. Adrian confirmed, He was God. That's just the way it was. Dorian originally said his father was the best dad in the world, but now he sees his dark side. Adrian said he had suspicions that his father may have been behaving incestuously towards the girls in the house because the children being born all looked like Marcus. Serafino opened up about the abuse. At first, all he could focus on was defending his dad, but eventually he saw his father for what he really was. He spoke about how once he snuck a spoonful of peanut butter, and when caught, he was beat with a cable wire for 20 consecutive minutes. He said their punishments often lasted for weeks or months, for one offense. They would get hit 20 times in the morning, in the afternoon, and then again in the evening for 30 days straight.
0: my goodness.
1: The children said the Bible studies and prayer sessions would last hours at a time. They said that they didn't realize they were living in hell because they were born into it, and they had no outside influences to teach them any other way.
0: That's what the isolation does. Mm -hmm.
1: Marcus's daughter Gypsy was able to run away and has since changed her name. And this is the one that I was able to watch the interview with. She said that sometimes they were made to stay below the ship's deck for four or five months at a time. She said quote, "It felt like being in a prison, very depressing, like hopeless, and you felt trapped, nowhere to go. We stayed below deck because if we were above deck, people would see us and question, Why aren't we in school?" He couldn't have that happening. She said on the stand when she had to testify, she was only ten feet away from her father. The children thought he would get out and were afraid to talk badly about him. She said,
0: if the children were to testify now, it would be so different." So they didn't give an honest testimony back then for fear.
1: Yeah, he was only 10 feet away from them. He shouldn't have been in the courtroom when they were testifying. No. She reflects now how surreal it is to have freedom to live her life. She can eat what and when she wants and take a shower or leave her home freely. She also has said that the word monster isn't a strong enough word to describe her father. A new word needs to be invented to accurately describe him. She wishes he would be sent into Genpop inside prison and let the other inmates give him what he deserves. Wow Kiani, who had testified defending her father during court, later said, quote, "I didn't know anything else, and I thought it was all right. I thought it was okay because we were being a surrogate mom, a surrogate mother, so that's how I justified it. I was always afraid to disobey the rules or leave because I felt I would be cursed to not have my dad's blessing or to not be blessed by Jesus." I didn't want that. Kiani also stated that she thinks her sister did kill the children and their sister, but she thinks her father killed Sabrina. And I have to say, I think I agree with her. I can see this being how things panned out. I think she probably shot the children and the sister and then helped him to entangle all of the bodies, because why would he do all of the work? And then he, I think, took her life. Yeah, that makes sense. The remaining children have done their best to move forward with the nightmare they all endured. Many have successful careers, marriages, and children of their own with a loving partner, and I honestly wish them all so much healing and happiness in their lives. They are all warriors in my eyes. None of them have contact with Marcus. They say they see him for what he really is, psychotic, delusional, and narcissistic. I will end with a statement about this case from the director of the Hallowell Centers in New York and Boston, psychiatrist Edward Hallowell. He said about Marcus, quote, What he basically did was create this crucible of fear. He used fear, extreme fear, to get these kids to act completely counter to their self-interest. Such was his control over their minds that he could even send them out into the world and they didn't blow the whistle. All they had to do was walk into the police station or even just tell their boss about what was going on at home and the jig would have been up. And that is the story of the self-centered, selfish, slothful, disgusting pig of a dirtbag who thought he was godlike and owned every single person in his family, the evil, unrepentant father, Marcus Wesson.
0: You're right, Christy. That was an awful case about a horrible dirtbag dad.
1: Yeah, I'm really curious to hear about the dirtbag dad that you're researching currently.
0: Well, he was a dirtbag, but I'm not sure it was to that magnitude.
1: Yeah, Marcus is one of the worst ones I've ever researched,
0: for sure. I believe he totally ran his home like a cult. I'm always so shocked at that cult mentality and how you can get somebody to go against their own self-interest.
1: But I feel like it's easier when it's your children and you're raising them that way. These weren't outside people that he was trying to convince and bring in. He was creating his own little flock.
0: Yeah, it's true. Right from birth, he was brainwashing them. Yeah,
1: by incest and rape.
0: He's just so despicable the way he treated them.
1: Yeah, and I think the salt in the wound is that he's still blaming Sabrina, still saying it's not him. It's not his fault. He is not sorry at all.
0: That's his narcissism coming through.
1: But thankfully, we are done now with Marcus Wesson. And I hope that those of you who are listening can focus your time and energy on the great men in your lives, the men who are not like Marcus. And I hope that all of you will have a really fabulous Father's Day. And we'll be back again next week with another dirtbag. But until then... See ya. Bye. Hey, listeners. Oh, no, we're not doing that. It's testing. (laughs)
0: We can go right into it. That's okay. No, we have to test. We've learned that.
1: <laughs> we need to live stream from the beach. He's so
0: amazing. We are looking at how to pronounce. <laughs> we are looking at
1: how to pronounce the name. And could express himself. Whoa! <laughs> Holy
0: moly! <laughs> Melissa put her fists up. <laughs> I'm a fight girl. <laughs> I'm going to tell him you suck. <laughs> Melissa sending him love texts. <laughs> that was not nice. <laughs> I have a heart yeah. attack. <laughs> so he couldn't go to jiu He can go. Make sense? Yep. Okay. <laughs> I was like,
1: how do I write this out? Because it gets so crazy. David Koresh was a cult leader and I
0: was going to say Wacko. It is in Wacko. Waco, yeah. Okay, Office, hold on. Oh. I put my cheat sheet back. Okay.
1: Is it helping? Yep. Okay. <laughs> that was weird. I thought it was like, <laughs> like feedback from the yeah. mics, but that was in my head.
0: Because she has feedback in her head. <laughs> oh, that was weird.
1: <laughs> but we are pretty certain that all of the dads listening are great dads because you listened to us. hey we're live pal and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast tales from the estate each week we talk about our top five favorite somethings my beautiful wife caitlin likes to share all sorts of random facts
0: yeah did you know that cows have accents
1: We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out.
0: Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind what she said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower.
1: Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada. Women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on blasttheradio.com mondays at 5 p.m. and wednesdays at
0: 7 p.m. that's blasttheradio.com it's time to dive into the stories that truly matter another sound off media company podcast